Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 186, Wessex, a story of myth-building, opportunism, and annexation. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Sarah, Josh, and Andrea for contributing already. Now, this episode is going to get a bit into the political weeds, and it's for a very important reason. We're seeing the development of that dynastic juggernaut we've all come to know and love, the House of Wessex. And I want you to see how and why it's forming into what it will eventually become. Because the successes of Alfred and the later successes of King Athelstan, who was the first king of England, all flow from the things that were set into motion during these early days of the Viking era. So please keep that in mind when we're talking about what the various dynasties were doing, because it really does matter, even though most people don't usually talk about it. All right, let's get to it. It's the year 852. Mercia had recently lost to a Vikinger fleet that was reportedly 350 ships strong. And then the West Saxon kings... Aethelwulf and his son Aethelstan arrived with a massive contingent of warbands and showed them how they did it on the west side. Following their victory, it appears that the West Saxon sphere of influence was expanding into Mercia, because coins began to be issued picturing both Aethelwulf of Wessex and Bertwulf of Mercia. And this makes a certain amount of sense. Mercia could not defend London. And now there was a new power in the south, consolidating and reorganizing so effectively that it was able to destroy the same army which had defeated the king of Mercia and looted London. The Mercians, who had been flirting with the possibility of a comeback under King Wiglaf, had collapsed under the reign of King Bertwulf, thanks in no small part to his son Prince Bertfrith, who had murdered the scion of the Whig dynasty only a few years earlier. Mercia was in dire straits, and starting to look a bit like Northumbria. And then, on that same year, 852, King Bertwulf died. We aren't told how. In fact, the only reason why we think he died in 852 is because we reverse-engineered the date of his death by looking at the records for other kings. That's how little we know here. But something really interesting happened that makes me wish we knew a lot more. The king's son... Prince Bertfrith did not succeed to the throne. In fact, he disappears from the record entirely. Not only that, but it looks like the king had two other sons, as they had been seen witnessing charters, and they also vanished from the record. It was a complete erasure of a dynasty, and instead, someone named Burgred claimed the throne of Mercia. And we aren't entirely sure where Burgred came from. Based upon the fact that he has a B name, it's possible that he was related to King Bertwulf. However, that's anything but a sure bet. Naming consistency within a family is a solid theory, but there were more than 26 families in Mercia, so there is bound to be overlap. Furthermore, we can't really assume that everyone would have followed the dynastic naming rules. There's also the possibility of people wanting to upjump themselves with names that imply a higher station. Sort of like how everyone and their dog was related to Woden only a few hundred years earlier. So Burgred's bee name doesn't prove that he was Bertwolf's cousin or something. But even if he was part of the same dynasty, 
why was it Burgred who took the throne? Based upon the records, there should have been someone on the direct royal line who could take over. I mean, the previous king had three sons. And while they all did disappear after Burtwolf's death, surely one of them must have still been alive, right? And if they weren't, and they were all dead? That's awfully suspicious. So what was going on here? Was there a coup? Prince Burtfrith undoubtedly made some enemies when he murdered Wigstan. So was there some retribution that went unrecorded? The disappearance of the king and his entire family is striking. But so is the silence in the record. And that's something to consider when we're trying to track down what happened. Our records for this period almost exclusively come out of Wessex. So if we're asking why don't we know more, we should probably look at who was writing down these stories and what their agenda was. The chroniclers and Asser were writing from the West Saxon perspective. And remember, they weren't interested in facts. They were interested in truth. And the truth is out there. That's why dead flocks of birds count for as much, if not more, as major battles in the eyes of our chroniclers. They were seeking truth. And at this point, the truth that they wanted to impart to their audience was that the House of Wessex was the bestest. They were the only real kings of England. And the reason they wanted to tell everyone this was because they were up to their necks in Scandinavians, and they needed to motivate people to fight for the House of Wessex. That was a tough sell, as it was actually a better deal for the lower orders to just accept the new dynasty most of the time. And all of this is actually quite important, because as soon as Burgred claims the throne, he agrees to marry King Aethelwulf's daughter, Princess Aethelswitha. He may have also formally ceded the wealthy lands of Berkshire to Wessex, as he was listed as a mere ailderman of that territory under West Saxon overlordship. Though some scholars argue that Berkshire was already seized in the days of Burgred's predecessor, King Bertwolf. But at the very least, we're looking at a dynastic link forged through marriage, and a formal relinquishment of lands that had been fought over for literally centuries. But this might be less surprising than it sounds. King Burgred had just taken over a kingdom that was in crisis. The fights with Wessex and other neighboring kingdoms, the fights with Wales, and of course the Viking raids, were stretching mercy and resources thin. King Burgred was probably willing to do whatever was necessary to stop the bleeding. And seeking support from Wessex, who had a proven track record against the Scandinavians, made a great deal of sense. And perhaps this is as far as it went. Perhaps it was sheer pragmatism and an ends-means situation. Maybe Burtwolf's death and the fact that his entire dynasty had vanished was a coincidence and had nothing to do with the new pro-Wessex policies that were carried out by the new King Burgred. Coincidences like that do happen. But it is one hell of a positive turn of events for Wessex, isn't it? First, you have the Scandinavians demolishing their rivals, the Mercians. And then they loot the economic jewel of their kingdom, and while the West Saxons had mustered a ridiculously large force, they held and waited in the south, and didn't get involved until the Scandinavians crossed into Wessex. When I first read this story, I thought it was unfortunate that they didn't show up earlier and save London. But the more I read, the more I started to suspect that it might have been the plan all along. After all, with that kind of loss, 
It was no doubt quite easy to convince King Bertwolf to play nice and accept joint coinage with Wessex. Now, why would joint coinage matter? Well, despite the fact that we've been talking at length about how weakened Mercia had become, it still was a large and powerful kingdom. It was just not quite as powerful as it used to be. If Wessex wanted to annex Mercia, it would need to go about it delicately, and in a step-by-step fashion. Because Mercia was so large and it had been independent for so long, this would take generations, and baby steps really would be the only way to do it. Compatible coinages were a step in that direction, and the Mercian adoption of that coinage no doubt made King Aethelwulf of Wessex and his nobility quite happy. But what I want you to consider is what if the murderous Prince Bertfrith or his brothers were not as willing to play ball as their father? What if they weren't as pro-Wessex? Or what if King Bertwulf and his sons realized what was going on and started to push back against West Saxon interventionism? Or hell, what if Burgred was just more willing to play ball than the rest of them? And he was willing to form a marriage alliance provided that he got put on the throne. I mean, in this situation, with so much on the line, is it really so hard to imagine Wessex manipulating things in Mercia in order to have a more compliant king installed? There really are a variety of situations where this transfer of power could have occurred. And in many of them, sharing the details would not enhance the honor of Wessex, which was kind of the whole point of the record. Rather, it would run the risk of diminishing their argument that they held the divine right to rule the English. Consequently, they'd have a hell of an incentive to stay silent if they were playing behind the scenes. It's something to think about. But the uncontrovertible bit of evidence we have is that Bertwolf and his family vanish, and Burgred immediately gets the spotlight. Sort of. I mean, we know who he is after his ascension, and the record gets quite interested in him once that happens. But we don't know how he got to the throne, nor do we know what his lineage was. But at least he's getting mentioned. And then the Chronicle begins to tell us about how wrecked the Mercian kingdom was, and how King Burgred had to come to Wessex, hat in hand, and beg King Aethelwulf for assistance. Apparently, the Welsh of Powys had rebelled against the Mercians, and they were giving King Burgred quite a headache. That is not surprising at all, by the way. The animosity between Powys and Mercia had been growing for generations, and wars had sparked up multiple times, usually during times of political instability, just like this one. The Welsh had an axe to grind with both Mercia and Wessex, since the last time that they fought against King Egbert, they were forced to submit to him. But times had changed. There were new kings in charge now, and based on what we're told, it seems that Mercia, at the very least, was rocked by a series of tragedies that would have shaken the stability of any kingdom and it's likely that Burgred was facing at least some degree of dynastic infighting on top of that. The time was ripe for the Welsh to assert their independence, probably under the leadership of King Anap Cadeth, the same man who raised the Pillar of Eliseg. So things for Mercia were going from bad to worse. And while it would have suited the West Saxon narrative to portray the Mercians as weak, and King Burgred as subservient to King Aethelwulf of Wessex, it is also quite likely that Burgred was as weak as they claim he was. They had been going through a rough patch. But reinforcements were on their way. Provided, of course, that he play ball. Wessex wanted that marriage, and they wanted that land. 
Through the brokered marriage that Wessex demanded, King Burgred was about to get a powerful ally that could help legitimize his rule in Mercia and push back rival leaders on his western border. And at the Palace of Chippenham in Wiltshire, the alliance between Mercia and Wessex was sealed with the marriage of King Burgred and Princess Aethelswitha. This, ultimately, was probably why King Burgred gets any mention in the Chronicle whatsoever, because now he was tied to the mighty house of Wessex. But the thing that I've been pondering is the possibility that the silence in his past and the disappearance of the previous ruling line might be due to dodgy politicking that the House of Wessex wasn't proud of. Whatever the case, while Burgred might have been pleased with the possibility of support from his powerful southern father-in-law, the real winner here was Wessex. With this union of their dynasties, they got what they wanted all along. A step towards annexation. And this was definitely in Aethelwolf's interest. But honestly, it wasn't all that terrible from Burgred's perspective either. They were under siege, so some degree of unity wasn't the worst idea. In fact, on this same year across the Irish Sea, a Norse chief named Olaf arrived with a massive fleet and created his own kingdom in Dublin. This, by the way, set the tone for Norse ambitions for the next period, as they set upon Ireland in earnest. And there is no way that that was the only fight in the British Isles that occurred during this year. Thanks to dating issues and various versions of the Chronicle, there are a variety of battles that we could describe to this year, depending on our sources. But the point is that even if we aren't reading detailed battle reports, it's almost certain that they were up to their necks with Scandinavian pirates at this point. Things in the British Isles were going to hell in a handbasket, so Burgred might have felt like he had no choice but to make a deal with the devil. Merging his dynasty with the House of Wessex was better than the alternative. And so, in about 853, after I assume they hugged it out after the wedding, Kings Aethelwulf and Burgred celebrated the union of their families by joining together and attacking the one group of people that they could all agree upon. The Welsh. As usual, we aren't given details, but the combined forces of Mercy and Wessex appear to have been too much for Poes to withstand. And this may have been the coup de grace against Mercy's old rival, because scholars argue that this loss was so bad that it broke King Abcadath and led him to leave Wales and travel to Rome to die, brokenhearted. Poes was crushed, and I wish we knew more about this era in Welsh history. Sometimes I even get emails from listeners who say, I like your show, but I want to know more about Wales. Yeah, me too. So much of this history appears to have been lost to us, probably forever. But what comes across to me loud and clear is that the story of Wales during this era is one of tragic loss. There was a time when it looked like they might win the cultural war that was raging on the island. But the victories of King Catwathlin of Gwyneth are now in the past. Things had turned against them. And it'll be quite a while before we see another great leader of Wales who stands a chance at seriously challenging the East. Before we wrap this episode up, though, I'd like to tell you a popular story of Alfred the Great that's also said to take place in 853. Many of you are likely to know it already. Quote, The same year, King Aethelwulf sent his son Alfred to Rome, and Leo, who was then Pope, consecrated him king and adopted him as his spiritual son, end quote. That's what the Chronicle tells us. 
And here's what I'm telling you. Bullshit. It would be amazing if that happened. It would also be amazing if he was a Jedi. And frankly, Alfred commanding the Force is way more likely. And let's break this thing down so you know why I'm coming out so strong on this. Alfred is Aethelwulf's fifth son. His fifth. And at least three of his brothers are still alive. And it's entirely possible that all four are still alive. So why, in the name of all that is holy, would Pope Leo consecrate him as king? That is problem number one. And even if Alfred was first in line, which he really wasn't, why would Pope Leo consecrate him? Consecrating princes is way below Leo's pay grade. That's the job of bishops and archbishops, not popes. Now, the writer who wrote this thing down likely wanted to draw a parallel between Alfred and Charlemagne, who was consecrated as emperor by Pope Leo III. However, don't forget that that consecration was under extreme duress. Charlemagne was all that was keeping poor Leo from having his eyes and tongue literally torn out by his predecessor's friends. Pope Leo III probably didn't have much of a choice in the matter, and that should highlight how rare this sort of thing was. That's problem number two. Alfred was also a young child. Really young. He was probably only four. His father, King Aethelwulf, was out campaigning, and his brothers weren't recorded as joining him, and his sister had just gotten married, so they wouldn't have come. We also think that his mother, Osburga, had probably died in the previous year, 852. So if none of his family was traveling to Rome, what was this supposed to be? His first solo field trip? At the age of four? To hang out with Uncle Pope Leo. That's not a thing that happens. And that's problem number three. Don't forget why these records are being created. They're intended to highlight the power of Wessex, and specifically, the power of Alfred. Having him anointed as king by God's personal representative on earth? Well, that's about as close to divine right as you can get without claiming to be descended from Woden. Which, by the way, it seems Alfred also did via his alleged ancestor Churdich. And that's problem number four. This is propaganda. Masterclass propaganda, but still propaganda. And it's why modern scholars roundly dismiss this account as a forgery, probably tracing it from about the 11th century, or maybe earlier. It's a zombie myth. No matter how many times you try and kill it, it keeps coming back because people just really want it to be true. But it isn't. Consequently, if you read some historical fiction or watch a documentary and someone mentions that Alfred took a trip to Rome to get blessed by the Pope, start being really careful with what you take away from it. Somebody was being dramatic. Or lazy. And thankfully, you now know the truth. It is out there. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Just go to at British Podcast. And you can find all our other social media sites. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and look in the upper right-hand corner. You'll find them all there. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>